0: It's a heavy lift, but together, we are keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here. Stay tuned. Check for
1: pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. Oh,
0: smoke's dead, lightning. You know what this is? This is a
1: very Hamiltonian That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
0: I speak tonight for the
1: dignity of man.
0: Make America Great Again. It was a perfect message. Simple, strong, tapping into nostalgia for a time when America was the leader of the world. Of course, part of the problem in the most recent election was that Democrats had no message. It was like a blank canvas just sitting there and Trump aggressively painting a picture. And it sounded good. America first. Gathered together a new base which remains fierce and fired up. To heck with the rest of the world, especially at the United Nations. Well, they're just a bunch of... Jealous little countries often run by communists. They've pushed us around long enough. What have we gotten for it? Well, never mind the actual history of the United Nations and the reason why so many American presidents have consistently supported it. Though the UN actually serves our interests and the dues paid by the US have long proved to be solid investments. As I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, we used to see bumper stickers put out by the far-right, lunatic fringe, John Birch Society. I can still remember those bumper stickers said, Get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. Everybody, Republicans as well as Democrats, concurred that the Birch Society and this anti-U.N. stuff was just nonsense from this bunch recognized by all as a fringe group. Yet I have learned that history and politics are never predictable. Here we are today, and it's as if the jingoistic far-right John Birch Society holds the reins of power. The president, Republican administration, is consistently holding up a middle finger to the United Nations. And why? How does it benefit us by doing so? What are the consequences for America and our once preeminent position in the world? Well, I'm very pleased to have with us on Keeping Democracy Alive today, Barbara Cresset. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, Barbara Crossette is United Nations correspondent for The Nation magazine, and I hope all listeners do. Stay tuned to The Nation magazine. Always good stuff in there. Her new article in The Nation is titled, The UN Eyes a World with Less US, subtitled, Frustrated by Trump's America First war on diplomacy, are other member nations pushing back or moving on? Barbara Croisset is United Nations correspondent to The Nation and a contributor to Pass Blue, an online international news site. She's the author of uh, The Burma Myanmar Chapter in Great Decisions 2013 and India Changes Course in Great Decisions 2015. She was a New York Times correspondent in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and at the UN the author of So Close to Heaven, The Vanishing Buddhist Kingdoms of the Himalayas and the Great Hill Stations of Asia. She won the 2010 Shorenstein Prize for her writings on Asia and the 1991 George Polk Award for her coverage in India of the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I believe one of the prime purposes of the United Nations is to quickly and effectively deal with global emergencies. As you write, quote, on July thirteenth, 2018, after more than a year of negotiations, United Nations member governments agreed on a plan to tackle the nightmare of uncontrolled global migration in an organized and humane way, end of quote. How many members are there in the United Nations, and how many voted in favor of this plan uh, dealing with uh, migration?
1: Well, there are 193 member nations, and 192 agreed with the final draft. The The final, final part comes in December in Morocco at an international conference, but the U.S. is the outlier.
0: The U.S. was the outlier. So now we are the outlier. Were there traditional outliers in the past? I get the sense that, that there may have been. My, perhaps my memory is wrong. If so, what nations were the
1: traditional outliers? Oh, well, the most famous case is, of course, Russia walking away. Uh, that's the reason it was possible to wage the Korean War. That's a long story. But um, <clears throat> there have been others uh, who have uh, re- refused to take part in, 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 in certainly in draft proposals and in committees. And I, it, it, the numbers are many, and in, uh, particularly in some things like the Human Rights Council. There's always difference of opinion. This was going to be the very first time... The nations of the world together got together on the migration story. And it's unbelievable that it comes up against this background of uh, the Trump administration uh, kidnapping children from their families and deporting people without cause and doing all sorts of other things that make it look more like an outlier than it even is.
0: Yeah. Who would have ever thought that, that, that we would be doing that, that the United States would be doing that kind of thing? Just unthinkable. But then again, history is uh, always unpredictable. Have, have we been, as has been charged, have the United States been unfairly pushed around by the little countries ganging up so? And if so, in what ways has that harmed America?
1: Well, you know, there there is one factor here that I think everybody in the administration doesn't understand that the world is not the world that, that you know Trump's generation or anybody else's knew once knew. It is made up of 193 countries. Many of them are very small, and many of them are allied in things like the Non-Aligned Movement, what's left of it, and the G77, a group of 77 developing nations. And basically, they have their own policies for the world um, now the U.S. can reach, reach out to them, as John Kerry uh, did and uh, in the Obama administration and others, and, and try to negotiate or discuss in, in some useful way what world policies should be pursued and why. But that's not happening now. And um, so it's a combination of America first, but with it is a complete ignorance of the rest of the world, and a total ignorance of how the U.N. works.
0: Ignorance of how the U.N. works. It's just, it's so surprising. I I just, one could never have imagined the United States having ignorance of how the United Nations works. But apparently it is. And uh, actually, uh, I'd like to see a bumper sticker that would seem to fit a lot of cars. Ignorant and proud of it, because that's what we seem to have in our White House right now. If you just tuned in, (laughs) go ahead.
1: Go ahead. I was going to say two things to be Go ahead. To just said there in that last sentence. Um, one, I, I have come to blame the American education system for some for some degree and the yes. imp- impact that the anti-UN people have had. Um, it's not like the gun control people, but you know what I mean. In other words, a, a, a solid group of people who has trounced the UN forever or, or mostly forever. I mean, things got off, as you know, to a terrific start in 1945. But that's ancient history now for most people. But the other thing is that um, added to that, uh, so so in other words, people don't know anything. There's very little uh, information taught in schools anymore, even basic civics. uh, How the U.S. government works is not taught. It's a lot of other studies that that have been introduced into the curriculum in every level of schools. Now, the, the second and I think the really damning thing that's happened is that this president... And a lot of the people around him in the White House have, in fact, uh, contempt for experts um, and contempt for uh, people outside with other views. And, and so, you know, something's playing out now behind the scenes is that Trump basically wants to completely atrophy the State Department. Yes. Even Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, you know, who was fired mm-hmm. after, after a year or so, as Secretary of State, tried to put a stop to some of this. But the, the the number of several dozen uh, diplomats, I mean ambassadors, have not been reported to uh, uh, appointed to important countries. There are several things going on now. They are they're thinking of collapsing the whole section on refugee and migration affairs and turning it over to someone who uh, uh, Ronald Mortensen, who is well known to be a tremendous foe of immigration. I mean, even in Congress, uh, people on both sides of the aisle have. Um, question disappointment so every chance they get uh, they, they can uh, atrophy parts of the State Department or weaken the State Department because as you know it's got too many so-called experts they hate experts mm. and Trump has you know made it made it clear that he knows better than everybody else those, those things are going on and the longer that this administration stays in office, the more effective this will be in the long run. I mean, people are fleeing the Foreign Service. Yeah. People are not applying for the Foreign Service. People are having, uh, you know, people who are interested in international affairs almost entirely except for uh, a certain ideological groups are very concerned that this will have long-lasting effects. And if I can add one more thing, sure, the do. UN is one place that you can get together with people from the rest of the world, get to know them, and also find out, uh, you know, what what common ground there may be in some of these issues, because there are. We have, we have all these overwhelming global issues, and the administration doesn't want to deal with any of them: climate change, world trade, whatever you name it. Uh, they decide against all these things because they think they know better.
0: They think they know better, and with regard to public education, I think you're absolutely right and there has been i'm sure you'd agree for 30 or 40 years a concerted effort by republicans to defund public education and there's a reason why so if people don't know then these uh people that are in power now can have their way and certainly the uh taking a you know dismantling the state department is absolutely going on i remember uh, uh richard nixon had his secretary of state uh Bill Rogers, but he had virtually no power. So it's been going on for a while, and and here we are. It's been building and building and building to this authoritarian mm. and stable genius who wants to go it alone. And going it alone is just not possible. We are in the world. If you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Barbara Crosette, United Nations correspondent to The Nation. And we're talking about uh, the United Nations eyeing a world without the United States, which is, it seems like, an intent. Now, growing up in the so innocent 1950s, my patriotism grew out of an understanding that the U.S. was a beacon of hope for the oppressed people of the world. We offered freedom and opportunity and an unquestioned commitment to human rights. After all, There's the Emma Lazarus quote at the very symbol of our nation, the Statue of Liberty. The give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send me the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. As we all know, there's a massive refugee crisis in the world today. It's certainly a human rights emergency. Growing out of the UN Declaration on Human Rights, written by America's Eleanor Roosevelt, one of the greatest Americans ever, in my opinion, in 1966, the U.N. Human Rights Committee came into being, and the U.S. has long been a member. Now, President Trump's nominee was rejected by that committee. Tell us about that, please. Why was, his, was he rejected, and how historic is that rejection of the UN, U.S. appointment to the Human Rights Committee?
1: Yeah. Now, the Human Rights Committee, as you as you say, it monitors. It's a standing committee of experts. Experts. You know, here comes that bad word again. Um, globally, they they come from all over the world, and uh, it's to monitor the implementation of the of the Convention. The Human Rights the Human Rights uh, I think it was called a Covenant. Yes. Um, and that's different from the Human Rights Council. We can come to that later. But it's, it's important because the U.S., it, you said 1966 This was uh, created this covenant. The U.S. didn't join it until, I think, 1990. Right. Right. So already there, there was the backsliding. Uh, but it, it had, that, that had a lot to do with the Middle East and with uh, Zionism as racism and all of those things that really set back American public opinion about the U.N. Mm. But then since 1995... The U.S. was always represented on that committee. Uh, A nominee is made by the government of of any country who wishes to nominate someone who is an expert. Uh, The last one before now was a professor of international law and human rights at Columbia University. Um, So uh, her term was up at the end of this year, and the uh, administration appointed a man who has uh, a good... uh, you know, legal credentials, but a very um, conservative political view. In any case, in <clears throat> any case, uh, some of the leading pe- human rights people have said this is extraordinary that the U.S. was basically rejected by this committee that that um, that monitors human rights in the world. Hmm. And so uh, they they are, well you, you have seen the list. They 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 not, they put nine other other countries on the list. And rejected the U.S. I mean, Albania, Chile, France, Greece, Guyana, Japan, Slovenia, Tunisia, and Uganda.
0: Uganda are on the. Com- oh my goodness!
1: On the committee, and the U.S. is not.
0: And it's, once again, it's it's like uh, going through the looking glass. Here we used to be the beacon for human rights. Absolutely amazing that this has happened to us. Now the U.S. has sent some terrific people as ambassadors to the United Nations. How, how distinct is the Trump-appointed U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley? How different is she from her predecessors?
1: Well, you know, she started uh, out with absolutely no international experience. She'd been a governor of a southern state. And um, she's smart. She's affable. Uh, you know, people have taken to her personally, uh, a, a, to some degree, and some of the other ambassadors. But over the year and a half, or a little more now than the year and a half that she's been doing this job, something has happened to her. She had a Senate confirmation in January of 2017. She had some clear ideas. I mean, she was willing to call the Russians out for war crimes, crimes against humanity in Syria. She had strong opinions about a lot of things that, in a way, came from her own beliefs. I mean, her parents were immigrants, uh, and she grew up as an Indian-American in in, in the South. Um, So, so, but something happened, and partly it is that she became completely completely fixated on the Middle East, on Israel and Palestine. And um, moreover, uh, very much on the side of Israel, she became almost the secondary ambassador for Israel in the UN. And this came to a, to a, a very nasty head last December when out of the blue, uh, Trump uh, announced that he would uh, accept uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which no other country has done because there have been security council resolutions saying this has to wait until there is peace and, uh, and an agreement. The last item on this agreement will be the status of Jerusalem because it has Christian, Muslim, and Jewish sites. Uh, so to do this was to upset the whole history um, in, in, in sort of one you know, one little announcement. I think it was actually, I think we may have said it and tweeted it, but whatever it was. Um, and so, so the UN reacted instantly. The Security Council would have voted unanimously against the U.S., a condemnation and um, a demand for this to be rescinded. Now, she uh, was obviously a member of the Security Council. She vetoed it. Otherwise, it would have been 15 against I mean, 14 against zero. She vetoed that. That made a lot of people angry. In other words, you know, you're on the Security Council. The Security Council has resolutions after resolution about the future of Jerusalem. She insists that the U.S. has the right. And then she says... The American people wanted us to do this, of which there is no shred of evidence, even in polling that took place at the time. So, um, then, so then they thought, okay, they were, they were really angry. They started lashing out at the rest of the world, Trump and Haley, Nikki Haley. And so then they went. the, the UN uh, membership went to the General Assembly. General Assembly has no enforcement. Uh, powers, as you know, mm-hmm. but um, it ha- it is the talking shop for the world, basically, with all those 192-plus, uh, as it is now, members. <clears throat> On the eve of the vote in the General Assembly, Trump himself and then Haley basically threatened anyone who voted against the U.S. In other words, the, the resolution was to condemn the U.S. In the, because the thing in the Security Council failed with a veto to condemn the U.S. and demand a rescission of the decision. So I can't remember what the the, the overwhelmingly voted against the U.S. The General Assembly did. Uh, I think only just a handful, half-dozen or so countries, voted with the U.S., and then there were a lot of abstentions. um, You know, people (laughs) didn't want to to get out front there. But anyway, uh, the fact is that uh, they were soundly beaten, and 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 they and the American delegation was so angry, um, you know, it's just how dare, you know, here they have been tra- crashing the U.S. and everything, how dare they right. not see our point of view? And I don't think that rancor has gone away yet. Mm. So yeah. then we come into this year, and, you know, it's been uh, another series, at, at the end of last year, to another series of U.S. rejections get out of UNESCO. Uh, you know, uh, uh, don't don't sign the climate change or uh, withdraw from the climate change agreement. Right. Uh, the, the tariff uh, stories. I mean, there's, everything that's been happening that has rankled the world, uh, and so that's that's the background um, at, at which at which we are now. And there, she has uh, Haley has become um, no no longer as a person who is willing to compromise or discuss things. She's She's become a hardliner, and it's mostly on among the Middle
0: East. And there are lots of people in the United States who, uh, you know, Trump's base, that rock-solid 35 percent or whatever it is, who don't care that we rankle the world, as you say. And you talk of an angry speech about the Human Rights Council that Haley made to the right-wing Heritage Foundation in July of 2018— as one who has been continuously shocked by the president himself basically every single day, her words, as described, still shocked me, even on top of you know being used to Trump shocking me all the time. I wonder if you could tell us about the content of, of what she said in her angry speech to the Heritage Foundation. Did she really assert American superiority? Could she have said something like that?
1: Yeah, I can just backtrack a second and then remind me if I do it all. The time. Oh,
0: sure, sure, sure. Uh, in,
1: in June of last year, I, uh, in Geneva, she made a speech at the uh, Graduate Institute of Geneva, which is a big tank for people who are going to become ambassadors and foreign ministers and people, even academics who want higher degrees. They, they, they grant higher degrees. She, she didn't go to the Human Rights Council. But anyway, she made the speech at the Graduate Institute, a com, a com, an audience of complete brains. And um, she made two comments that Israel had a great human rights record, and then she said, which she's repeated again, nobody in the world has is, is, does as much for human rights as the United States. Uh, I'm looking for her her actual quote here, but um, oh here it should. Uh,
0: well, she. Anyway, we used to have that reputation. Yes, we did.
1: Yeah. The, the U.S. does more for human rights, both inside the U.N. and around the world, than any other country. Anyway, when she made statements like this at the Graduate Institute, one of them provoked a, a sort of small gasp from the audience. Not bad. And the other one giggles. <laughs> so, you know, so internationally, even a year ago, I mean, people thought, you know, who is this person? And, you know, where does she come from? And it's, um, you know, it was, they were, these are always take it or leave it speeches. And right. this is the way she's done things uh, all along. So at the Heritage Foundation, she had to explain, she was asked to come and talk about the fallout from the U.S. leaving the Human Rights Council, Mm -hmm. um, which, as I said, is a different thing from the Human Rights Committee. But the Human Rights Council is 47 member nations who are elected to this thing. And once again, it was a question of, you know, nasty countries get in. Well, you know, there are two sides to that story. Nobody likes these awful countries in there. But on the other hand, they get elected from their regions. And um, better inside the tent than out. So anyway, um, she searched around for excuses. And at the Heritage Foundation, I was astonished. She said, basically, that who's to blame for the, the U.S. leaving the Human Rights Council, mm-hmm. is, which they did this year, is, um, is the fault of the other countries. Oh, really? I mean, basically, she laid down two cynical norms for the countries. Rest of the countries on the council. They want a reform of the election system. Everybody does, or a lot of people do, but that takes years in the UN with 163, 193 points of view. But okay, a lot of Europeans and others said, okay, we'll work on that. Not good enough. We want it instantly. And the second thing was to remove the special item on the agenda that allows for perennial uh, attacks on Israel. And, you know, a lot of people agree with, her with that too. And there were There were international committees that came up with alternatives. In other words, work toward a compromise on this. Let's cut it back. We don't like these things either. But her ideas just stomp out. Well, maybe this is Trump's idea, but she went, okay, so she said the other countries, because they wouldn't do what the U.S. wanted right away, were to blame. Then I thought the most horrific thing, or surprising thing, I shouldn't be too judgmental, in this speech at the Heritage was... Um, that the, the um, uh, NGOs, you know, non government organizations, right. human rights groups, and she named Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch by name, are too cozy with the UN. And they, and they, they should have been on the side of the US. Hmm. Uh, now, I know from, for example, Human Rights Watch, the person who, who does the UN there, Um, Louis Charbonneau, he said, you know, what Haley has done in this last year is she had made Israel the only issue. There's so many other issues. I mean, uh, other countries were trying to put together a package, you know, sort of put the bubble wrap around the main issue. And and let's all work together on this. Uh, And nobody, uh, very few people, very few countries wanted to vote. To uh, or to decide that um, they, you know, they would go with the U.S. just to get them to stay on the council. So the U.S. walked away, and um, this is what we have. But to blame the non-government organizations uh, w- was unbelievable. I and to accuse them of being too close to people in the U.N., accuse them of having big fancy budgets, and uh, and so on. And she said these uh, NGOs should have been. Have been supporting us, and instead they, you know, they they took the side of, she said, Russia and China, which is, you know, defamation of the highest order in in condemning human rights groups and other international organizations who really do work around the world.
0: There are there is a lot of work going on with regard to human rights. There are some real problems, and the UN has traditionally been a place to. Uh, to deal with that. And the big, powerful nations like the U.S. and Israel uh, don't want to be criticized at all. It's our way or the highway, as is often yeah. often said. Um, so your article points out that the U.S. pulled out of UNESCO. What is UNESCO? What? How, how will they be affected? What is UNESCO, first of all?
1: Uh, UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. That's where they Uh, get the acronym UNESCO. Sounds threatening. uh, Sorry, acronym UNESCO. And um, I think it's best known around the world for its uh, world heritage sites. It it, um, it, uh, accepts um, applications for world heritage sites and biosphere sites and so on. Yeah. And and it designates them, and that puts them sort of in the endangered list of sites, or not always endangered, but sites that must be protected. And then they started in on things like uh, culture saving, saving languages. You know, uh, that 17 people still speak, and things like that.
2: True. I mean,
1: they have a they have a lot of UNESCO has a lot of support in the U.S. among academics and among. Um, uh. It keeps people who are in, interested in, in cultural preservation and in archaeology and things like that. So um, but um, the board of UNESCO voted, what was it a couple of years ago to allow Palestine to have a seat. I mean I do I have to tell you the rest of the story No and <laughs> not on the board but in, in as a member of UNESCO. Uh,
0: once again and it's it, all about Israel and Palestine. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Amazing. It's once again, it's all about Israel and Palestine, as you say. That that's
1: no, exactly, exactly. And so, as a result, um, the U.S. just just didn't go to meetings and things. Went back, I think, under Obama onto the board.
2: Uh-huh.
1: But the bottom line here is that if the the U.S. can't leave like the minute it says it's going to. There's a process. So I think it's in October. Uh huh. Um that would when uh, they they will have formally left UNESCO, and they will be five hundred million dollars in debt to UNESCO for past dues they haven't paid. Oh uh, assessments, they're you know voluntary and so on, but it keeps these projects alive. They also work on education around the world. they 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 they, they, they they've had problems in the past long ago. With uh, some of the developing countries and their new world information order, you know they wanted basically uh, information to be coming from governments, not from reporters and all that stuff and UNESCO survived that um, and as you know when the us went back uh, into UNESCO I, I, I think the first time was in twenty I can't remember when it was it, it was it was Laura Bush
2: yeah.
1: Who went to UNESCO and delivered the uh, delivered a talk about about it? They, I mean, it wasn't necessarily just about that, but it was the idea that she's a librarian oh, and how much UNESCO had meant to people like that. I don't have her speech in front of me, so sure. I can quote from it. But but I mean, the the idea being that, and this is I think uh, another uh, reflection on the Trump. As you said earlier, American presidents, other American presidents, they may not have been in love with the UN, but they understood its values, particularly the Security Council value, when you want to get a policy um, done, as George H.W. Bush did with the first Gulf War. Uh, they, they, they banged away on the Security Council until they got an authorization. It didn't work with the war in Iraq. Oh. Uh, under George W. Bush, because there was so much hostility toward an American war that no one saw the need for. And they were right. But um, <laughs> but but, see, but the pre- presidents and the, I must say the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the great years of Fulbright oh. and uh, Charles Percy and others who oh. uh, um, you know who who were real internationalists. That's all gone. And so you don't get that much support. Now, you still have support on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee among some of the members and in the Senate generally for international uh, international uh, things in the budget, particularly. You know, Trump has tried to cut out, and Mnuchin, Mnuchin it is largely, uh, cut out uh, U.S. official funds for almost everything and anything. Yeah. Uh, last year, they tried to strip program, you know, the Fulbright Fellowship, of all its money. They, they they tried to strip the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington of all its money. They went after all kinds of American exchange programs that had federal money. And, uh, this, and the uh, con- Congress restored a lot of this. Uh, it saved the Fulbright uh, uh, Foundation's money, but for how long? Um, and so on. So there's still people there who understand the value of these things around the world. And but, uh, but in this case, we have a president who is completely on the other side of the spectrum, not only doesn't like them, but doesn't even know what they are.
0: <laughs> well, he's a stable genius. After all, he knows everything. And I mean, that's it's a base, basic, uh, I think, tentative authoritarianism is that it's his way. You know, the, the internationalists, as you say, that used to be strong in the Republican Party are gone. That, uh, you know, he just wants to dominate and control the world. I think uh, psychologists and psychotherapists might have a little bit to say about that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Barbara Crossett, United Nations correspondent to The Nation. Uh, her new article is The UN Eyes a World with Less U.S., There's the United Nations Population Fund. I don't think there's anyone who doubts that the world is rapidly being overpopulated. Uh, What does the U.N. Population Fund do? Even the Republican-controlled Congress tried to restore funding. uh, And he apparently, uh, according to your article, issued an executive order superseding that move by Republicans in Congress. What, what is Trump's argument on this with regard to the U.N. Population Fund?
1: Well, you know, I don't understand, well, I, who who understands on what they base it. I, I think if they think it's their base. But let me go back a bit. In the 1990s, this all began, <clears throat> particularly with a representative from New Jersey, Chris, uh, oh, gosh, Uh, Anyway, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, uh, one one, uh, one small group of members of the House uh, really passed legislation that was based on a false premise, which is that the Population Fund was um, aiding and abetting or at least advising um, abortion in China. This was when China had the forced abortion policies. Right. Those policies have changed a lot. Yes. You know, even the one-child policy has changed a lot. Yes. But the mindset, Christopher Smith, that's who it is, ah. the mindset of these people hasn't changed. And so they, they have perennial legislation that strips the Populations Fund, which is the world's largest provider of family planning, of maternal health, and of, you know, newborn health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also looks after horrible things that happen, like female genital mutilation, and okay. um, uh, all kinds of uh, problems, fistula problems in poor countries where women die unnecessarily. It's a hugely important organization. Anyway, so so by executive, so they they basically said to the president, uh, you know, we we won't fund um, this population fund. And, uh, and then Reagan first made this decision. Uh, the whole world has changed. As I said, China has changed a lot. But this still, this still is on the books. And so the president is authorized to accept this a prohibition or not. And now, so it's become a political football. It was Reagan uh, instituted this at a, in a Mexico City conference, often called the Mexico City policy. Critics call it the global gag rule, which is that you can't give any money to anyone who even talks about abortion. But, but, the, but the, you know, the point is that, um, you know, so when Clinton came in, he reversed it, uh, and, and money started going. Then when uh, Bush came in, he reversed it back to the Reagan rules. Obama, uh, right away when he took office, restored money for the population fund and in fact added bits here and there so that for special projects um and so when trump came in naturally uh he went the other way but (laughs) but it's a it's become a political football with women's lives and with babies lives and you know and and as you say with overpopulation i i can say that after i retired from the times i i i did a Two, two trips around the world with the population fund mm. to talk to local people because I wanted to get a handle on this too because you always hear from feminists don't talk about family planning don't talk about birth control because that's getting involved with their culture their culture says have as many children and I talked to I don't know how many women all over Africa and Asia Latin America and um, they all said I, I I would you could sit with them and have tea you know a room full of women. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, you know, sort of, how many children do you think is perfect? And they'd say, well, four, maybe three. Uh, and I said, how many do you have? And they would say five, six, seven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and in some cases, they can't access family planning even when it's around the corner. In India, a woman told me she knows where the family planning office is, but if she went there, her husband would beat her to death. Yeah. So, you know, so, so they... They work on the frontier of this, and the, the women themselves around the world know there are too many children. Someone in India told me, um, we know there are too many seats in the bus and not enough places at the table. There aren't enough, sorry, and aren't enough seats in the bus or places at the table. I mean, they don't want to have seven or eight children. They don't want to die at the age of 35. Mm. And so, um, you know, where is the evidence? But they're operating on this old principle that somehow... Abortion is the issue, and there we come back to the um, to the real reason why they can beat up on the population front completely without evidence. But they can use the word abortion, and that you know sets off the fireworks where you would expect. Right,
0: <laughs> evidence. We don't need no stinking evidence. Now uh, we're talking about the U.S. and the U.N. and them. The U.N. moving on without the U.S. We've all heard of the United Nations peacekeeping forces. What has Trump done with Americans' participation in that? And again, what is his argument?
1: Well, you know what the argument is? Save money for the U.S. so we can spend it on the border wall and on, you know, arming. You know, they're they're already armed up to the teeth in the Defense Department. But, you know, that's money saving. So they have lowered their, uh, they have lowered against Uh, against the assessments of the U.N. It's a very complicated story I won't go into, but they won't pay what the U.N. says they owe, which is based on American economic power, by the way, and also its seat on the Security Council. All those five members have to pay a little extra for peacekeeping. Anyway, so now, you know, just last night or this morning, I saw they now want to take uh, even American soldiers out of areas where where the ISIS people have moved into West Africa and the Sahel, so this what has this got to do with American security? I mean, that's where that's where the next ugly things that might might be happening. They already mm-hmm. have in Nigeria with Boko Haram and others.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, so so they first of all want to cut the peacekeeping budget for the whole world. Which they managed, they said they managed to do a little bit. Although the new Secretary General at that point, Lupeiro, uh, 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 was agreed. You know, things can get out of control because everything is always getting more costs more than you think. But uh, but they okay, they want the U.S. will pay less, so they'll go into arrears, and they'll owe the U.N. money because what is assessed is assessed. So George Bush and Obama got over this, they paid the arrears, they paid up. Uh, so the U.S. didn't owe the U.N. anything on this. Now this is all going to be turned around. But but the other things are, um, they want to, uh, they working through the peacekeeping department, the U.S. wants to, and China, I might add here, you've got interesting bedfellows, Uh, want to reduce uh, a lot of the sort of what they consider the frills, I guess, the human rights monitors that go with missions abroad, Um, you know, various kinds of uh, extra work that is done, a little bit of development in places where people don't have enough to eat, and maybe you can teach them to plant a garden. I'm making this up. But you know what I mean? They, They want to hack away at what the UN peacekeepers do in a broader sense to help the society. And then, of course, we have all these sex scandals, which are not the peacekeepers usually, except for some countries' uh, forces. You know, the troops that come to, into the U.N. service, some of them are, are, are nightmares. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, so they, they just want to cut the peacekeeping down to the bone. I mean, that's really what this is all about. Oh. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, um, I mean, the U.S. is really not part of peacekeeping, except... <laughs> You know, they, they do provide very helpful logistical equipment and so on sometimes, and they, they can fly troops around. But it's, 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 the idea is we save money. Uh, we save money. And here I see if I can maybe finish with this. I guess we're going to run out of time. Oh, um,
0: we got lots of time.
1: John Bolton. Um, yes, John Bolton. Is, uh, he was uh, in New York, you know, trying to – he has a strategy. He's always had a strategy. And he's worked through the State Department and he's worked through the American Enterprise Institute another conservative think tank, and others. This was his idea, um, I, I think, all along. I first encountered him in the 90s when I was in the Washington Bureau for a while. Uh, and I, he's a gen- he genuinely believes that there is no such thing as international law and so on. But, you know, he, he kept the U.S. off the Human Rights Council uh, when he was temporarily ambassador in New York. He couldn't get confirmed. Um, so he was never sent to the Senate for that, and you know now he's back as National Security Advisor. and he's he's very, I think, very strategically focused. That that you can you can not wreck the UN, but you can uh, you know lose the UN's power and confuse everybody in there about who stands for what, and but and beggar it for money from inside and you can you can try to collapse it from inside that that's an exaggeration but you see what i mean so now he's the national security advisor of the united states and it's going to be interesting to see what happens now um whether he can work with Nikki haley uh, whether he will replace her whether they won't have Mm. an ambassador at the un it's all possible you know she's in her job uh and nobody's taking her job away but um you know he's he's a key figure and he he works behind the scenes
0: so he could make things worse in what ways
1: well um because of uh because because of how the the ambassador in, in new york has to has to pre- present american positions um and also because he has some he, ha- he has the ear of trump and he's got yeah, um yeah. He's he's got standing in the White House because he's the National Security Advisor, and he so he can he can promote. And I I, I wouldn't be surprised that he is behind some of the promotion of the uh, reduction in power for the State Department. But I don't know uh-huh. that for a fact. But he is you know as I said he's resolutely opposed to any international any international agreements uh, or anything international that would have have power to to influence American policy or to act against the United States if it's strayed. Um, And, you know, this is, again, a reflection of the idea. And I think his biggest value to Trump is to bolster him on this America First idea.
0: I see. So it's
1: just that he's a a smart man uh, with a strategy and a lifetime hating the U.N.,
0: lifetime hating the U.N. Ah, well, no wonder he's there. That seems to fit. I was interested to read in your article that under Trump, domestic politics have a global effect. What do you mean by that? What kind of domestic policies that Trump has put in have a global effect?
1: Well, you know, uh, you can start with the climate change, uh, the Paris Agreement on climate change. You know, uh, if one country emits or doesn't emit uh, uh, carbon dioxide or whatever, that CO2, whatever you're talking about, whatever kind of gas, um, it, it doesn't stay or not stay in that country.
2: Right.
1: So the global patterns of climate change. I mean, people are seeing it now. We've we've had <clears throat> we have the fires, more fires than usual in California. That's for sure. We have more more rain <laughs> it's raining right now here, uh, and uh, it's monsoon type weather. And it's happening in Europe. It's 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 devastated parts of Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, hugely different uh, climate patterns in you know in intensity, uh, whether it's the wind, the rain, uh, uh, or whatever. The, these things are everybody's. Yes. Uh, yes. And everybody has to work for them and uh, to 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 alleviate what can be alleviated. He, but then again, they don't believe in scientists. They don't believe in experts in international affairs. They don't believe in scientists, as you know. Yeah. And so they have, they have an extremely narrow-minded view, and, and moreover, they uh, they in the White House they want to help the coal industry to put more pollution in the air and so on. And un- these things, these things affect other countries, trade.
0: You know, yes, the, uh,
1: the, some of the tariff wars and things that have been started are going to hurt everybody in the world. Secondary sanctions on countries that deal with countries already under sanctions. Things like this uh, are, are everywhere. And, you know, NATO, uh, we we can't go into all this, but I mean, he's, NATO is already nervous uh, oh, sure. uh, about its future. And it's held, it's held the sort of <clears throat> transatlantic alliance and beyond together.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: For you know, almost eighty years, Yeah. or at least seventy-five years. So, so, so you know, his so a lot of these policies are made because of, he thinks his base. For example, the Clean Air Act. Yes. They want to get rid, of, but national parks are under threat. Right. Now, for one thing, people come from all over the world to see American national parks. They're absolutely wonderful. Yes. Um. You know, it, 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 it And then. People abroad take heart from what he's doing, uh, some governments, and they begin to do some of the same things. The immigration policy is pretty much what Hungary is following. Oh, great. Um, only maybe even more brutal, although at this point, who knows? And so on. You know, India has just said they're deporting four million people that they don't believe are Indian. They believe they're Muslims from Bangladesh. Um, uh, you know, so so it sets off a kind of. Well, it's okay. The U.S. does it. It's the, the obverse of how we started this conversation, where the U.S. was the shining example. Yes. It's, it's the other side of the U.S. that's now coming to the fore, if there ever was one, mm-hmm. where it's been created. And I think this is where his domestic policy to please what they consider the base, what the base will vote for, because that's what they hear from him, and a lot of it is not true.
0: Yeah, and that's what Nikki Haley meant by that's what the American people want, just that little base. Well, really, just Trump himself. Now, a couple of potential hotspots remain, Palestine and Iran. The United Nations would clearly have a role to play uh, if things get really heated there. From what you have observed, has Trump now frozen out any possibility of coming back into the fold if things really do blow up? In Palestine, Israel, and Iran, as they may have, we uh, cut off our potential options there to help uh, make things a little bit less crazy.
1: Well, I, I can separate those two, although they are linked, because Israel will be very happy to bomb Iran. Oh, if they true. Get the go ahead, no doubt. The U.S. The U.S. doesn't have to do but I mean, the withdrawing from the Iran deal—that is now on not life support. But the other, you know, six countries, I mean, Putin in Helsinki in public said he, he thought it was a mistake for Trump to withdraw from the Iran deal. Russia is one of the, uh, of the creators of that deal, along with uh, France and Britain and Germany, and I can't remember how many, there were six altogether, and the U.S. It took five years to negotiate that deal. and But Trump often talks uh, about Iran as if he's dealing with a banana republic. Yep. Persia was a great empire. Yes. It's, a, it's a country with huge history and highly educated people. And there. I might add a good family planning program. Uh huh. Um, so it, this is a this is a, a serious country. Yes. Um, you can't kick okay it right. around, and right. the the danger is that if there's trouble, it'll be trouble for the U.S. before it's trouble for other people. I I, I suspect. Uh, and I, at most, I think a lot of commentators are saying now the Iranians are being much more balanced, and smarter, and conciliatory oh, yeah. than they just than they just they should have to be because Trump just talks about them all the time as if they're a rogue nation. And meanwhile, he, you know, he he's making these deals with Putin. We still to this day don't know what he's promised to Putin. And in the Kim Jong Un thing is falling apart very fast. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so you know, he, he uh, it, 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 I guess the thing is, it's unsettling the world. You know, the, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations has written a book called "A World in Disarray," hmm. and that's basically stemming from what's happened in Washington. And it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying, because once you undo these, you know, long, long agreed, uh, uh, long negotiated things. Um, it's um, things fall apart it, it, it's so easy to to never be able to get them back and this is the thing with the UN it's a, at best a venue its agencies are very good I didn't mention that they're, they're starting to put pressure on the, can you believe the UN High Commissioner for Refugees
2: hmm. uh, you know, know
1: they lost the election I, I may have mentioned this in the piece they, they lost the election to run the International Organization of Migration quite likely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who would want what's going on in the border to take over the International yeah, Organization yeah. for Migration? Uh, but, you know, he, so, you know, he's, uh, he, they're, they're now, they, they now want to brand their money that they give to refugee relief really, so that the UNHCR has to put down on its statements or press releases or whatever this money is a gracious gift to you know, I mean, I'm making this up, the United States. And they want more control over some of the programs of the Refugee Commission. And this is bad because, among other things, UNHCR and the UN in general are way ahead of the United States on uh, on family planning. I mean, I shouldn't say they even, uh, Ban Ki-moon, when he was secretary general, even mm-hmm. authorized use of the morning after pill mm-hmm. for women who've been raped as refugees ah, because ah. that's. I mean, how can they start a new life when they're in a refugee camp and they're being raped and they get pregnant? I mean, you know, give them a break. And so, but that, you know, see if the U.S. starts focusing on some of its anti-abortion stuff, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, you know, the White House might think that would play with the base, you right. know, the anti-abortion crowd. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I go on, but it, there's, there, there are all these things that uh, internationally from a lot of uh, domestic concerns and a very temporary uh, idea about what will what will um, you know what will fire up his face I mean you saw this week he, he's now attacking the media in a very dangerous way yes with mob rule
0: No, I know it looks and like Germany in the 1930s I have to say with
1: exactly, his, exactly
0: with the mob rule certainly Trump you know wants to dominate and control the world he Appears to have that attitude toward women in general, I have to say, uh, and the aim to weaken the U.N. is part of that. He wants to project an image of strong and powerful, standing truly alone, overriding all other concerns. He just wants to appear that way. Now, it does appear that that thing called the American century, the, the notion of Americans having hegemony over the world and ruling the world. It's over. It's done. It's behind us. Many of us have long thought that the U.S. need to dominate the world has to end. Certainly, this is not at all what Trump intends. He wants just the opposite. But
1: He he, wants to dominate it negatively.
0: Yes, but unintended consequences do happen. In the wake of Trump, is it reasonable to expect perhaps an end, unintended, an end to American domination of the world? Might this actually turn out to be a good thing?
1: Well, but who picks it up? I mean, starting with the Security Council, the, New- the Human Rights Council, uh, the Chinese Belt and Road Program, which is going to wean Pakistan away from the U.S. I mean, whatever you think about Pakistan, the fact is, right. it has been a, t- t, you know, as you know it too, to Afghanistan and a, a kind of place for all the spooks and all that stuff. But um, <clears throat> China, uh, China now has no, huge I know. influence all over the world. In fact, that someone who publishes a very interesting website here called Africa is a Country, uh, <laughs> Sean Jacob. he said that recent in South Africa, this is, yeah. recent polls have shown that Af- South Africans of all kinds um, think that they would be better off relying on China than the West.
0: No, I'm sure. Yeah, well, so, it, it seems it's over. He's trying to dominate and control everything. Fascinating discussion what the UN is doing. I hope they can... Survive and and bounce back, and eventually uh, have some strength to it. Uh, Barbara Crosette, U- United Nations correspondent, The Nation. People can read her stuff at The Nation, and I don't know if there's other websites you can point people to.
1: Well, just pastblue and you know, believe it or not, I write a column for India Abroad, which is intended um. for a South Asian audience. But that's fun because I mean, I just got to write about Imran Khan, you know, the cricketer who's
0: oh yeah, been and
1: become. Yeah, I mean, but, but that's, you know, that's uh, all of these are, uh, from time to time, as you know, with the nation, they yes. are so fixed on politics, uh, they have a lot to do, and they've a lot, they have a lot of um, space that they have to devote to the American political situation. So, but I do write, the last thing before this one I wrote was about John Bolton, uh. in fact, saying so John Bolton gets a second chance to undermine the UN, so <laughs> anyway, that kind of
0: thing. Fascinating. Always more to talk about. Perhaps we can talk about uh, what's okay. going on in Pakistan at some point. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Very fascinating and interesting
1: Thank you step. so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Have you ever walked
2: alone at night
0: like a man
2: against the world? No one takes your side. A boat against the tide. When your faith is shaken, you start to break And your heart can't find the
1: words
2: We'll yeah. yeah.